This is Live Well Talk on COVID-19 and respiratory therapy. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital, and I'm joined today by the manager of the respiratory therapy department, Julie Smith. Welcome. Thank you for having me today. What, what is respiratory therapy? So respiratory therapy is um, all about taking care of patients' lungs. Okay. So the ins and outs, um, diagnosis, treatment, therapy, education with patients. You know, I think people easily call to mind what a doctor does and a surgeon and a, a nurse, but you know, I don't think they think about respiratory therapy, even though that is a, an integral part to the delivery of care in the hospital. You know, it's a huge con contribution, even more so with uh, the COVID-19 infections, which it may cause. Now we're gonna, today's podcast is gonna be a little inside baseball and more intended to discuss respiratory therapy and how it fits in and how the staff is going to adjust and uh, facilitate excellent care as they always do during this pandemic. But I think the general public will also uh, learn some information from this uh, in regards to the role of respiratory therapy and the decisions that need to be made. You know, Julie, one of our first things that we talk about is in our guiding principles is to protect our patients, our staff, and our physicians. Right. What measures uh, are you taking, for for example, for the aerosol-generating procedures, uh, the nebulizer therapy, the intubation, the extubation that generates aerosols? Even though COVID-19 is not airborne transmitted, we think that it may become airborne when there is a, a procedure like that. So what, 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 does, what does your team do to prevent transmission? Right. Well, the team is making sure that we're putting filters in place wherever we can on exhalation valves, um, on our BiPAP, CPAP, ventilators. And even so the nebulizers have a filter that we can put in place as well. We're also ensuring that we're wearing the proper um, PPE. So if we're doing an aerosol generating procedure, you really need to wear your N95 goggles and face shield or you're wearing your Max Air. Um, so it they, can, it's considered airborne precautions airborne. rather than just simply droplet Correct. or a contact. Yep. This has been, as I, I've said, that this is like flying an air, building an airplane as you're flying it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had data coming out of China, whether you can trust it or not, that's for another podcast. Then you had Italy, which I learned this week reading in, in JAMA, they're starting to bring out the data from Italy. And it's interesting that they were at 87% capacity in their, their ICU when they got their first patient of COVID-19. So they were already at capacity for their winter months. They had no opportunity like we've done to postpone elective surgeries save personal protective equipment, PPE, like mm -hmm. you mentioned. But one of the things that came out early is we shouldn't use high flow oxygen. We shouldn't use BiPAP. We shouldn't use CPAP. We should just go straight to innovation. And that, that kind of goes against kind of the normal operating paradigms. Mm -hmm. And I know some of the staff, we were, we were working on that assumption and we've changed that. Tell us, how does Vapotherm or high flow oxygen fit into the treatment of these patients at right. this time? Yeah. Well, you know, this is a rapidly evolving situation and we have to find out what's working, what's not working and how we can improve outcomes. So one of the things is um, that we're looking at is high flow oxygen. We've got to find that bridge for these patients so that we don't put them on ventilators right away because we will run out of ventilators if we do that with each and every patient. So we really want to do what we, what we really want to do is our best to use all of our resources and keep those patients off of ventilators. So, and you're right, the newer literature, Society of Critical Care Medicine is saying, suggesting that we should consider putting these patients on high flow therapy. Um, so at St. Luke's, we have Vapotherm. So it can deliver up to 40 liters of warm humidified O2 to the lungs. It's a higher velocity of flow 
that allows the upper airways to fill up with oxygen, creating a reservoir. So this can help reduce the patient's work of breathing and then increases the oxygenation that the patients can get. Because with COVID-19, that seems to be, you know, the biggest issue is yeah, it's, patients it's can't an, oxygenate. It's an oxygenation problem, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think this, this, the paradigm in place now is to use the BiPAP as a bridge to see if you can prevent them from going on the ventilator. Yeah. And if you have to, you have to. And if you can avoid it, wonderful. When I practiced critical care medicine, that was the way we looked at BiPAP. You know, now I know your team and a pulmonologist will put some on BiPAP for days. Uh, where my rule is six hours, you know, and if they couldn't turn around that time, uh, they either turned around or they went on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. And so I think we kind of gone back to that, that, that way. So it does show you that if you just keep doing what you're doing, your entire medical career, sooner or later, you're going to be cutting edge because it just kind of comes back as a pendulum swing. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself these days from that standpoint. <laughs> when they do go on the ventilator, particularly they're on it a long time, aren't they? They really are. That's what we're seeing right yeah. now. It's hard to get them off. So I think if we can prevent them from going on the ventilator in the first place, it's, it's the best, the right thing to do for these patients because, you know, the long-term usage on a ventilator can, can really cause more lung injury. In one of the editorials for the Society of Critical Care Medicine that came out, what, Saturday mm -hmm. last week, um, really said, you know, the younger patient, the, the 40, the 50-year-old that relatively healthy, has good lungs at baseline, that you, you, you should give them a trial of apotherm and BiPAP because they have a good chance to avoid being on the ventilator. Absolutely, yep. Now, we do, you know, we do have plenty of ventilators. I talk to you about that yeah. number all the time. I feel comfortable with that. But one of the things that has come out of the literature and even hear it on presidential press conferences about converting anesthesia machines uh, to ventilators, it's not that easy, is it? No, it's not. It's not a, just a plug and play. No, right? it's very difficult. Yeah. And it would require an attendant, because your team is not familiar with an anesthesia machine, correct? Correct. Yeah, correct. so you would, it would require an anesthesiologist or an anesthesiology nurse anesthetist to, to be there to, to make sure that machine's running right. appropriately. Because it was never intended to be a long, you know, 24 hours a day on you know, those machines. Absolutely right. Now, the protective ventilation strategy, you know, that's not something, that's some, not something new to COVID but it is something that we do uh, more than we used to uh, for other conditions, but certainly with this type of decreased oxygen uh, level that patients with COVID had. Tell, tell us what sort of uh, tidal volumes or, or, or size of breaths that we're giving patients. Yeah, well, we wanna make sure that those tidal volumes are lower tidal volumes because the lungs with this COVID-19 already have a little bit of injury in, induced with them. So we want to prevent any more injury. So lower tidal volumes, is what we want to do, the ARDSNET protocol, the four to six milliliters per kilogram. And then if they're on the ventilator, is it airborne or droplet at that time, precautions? If on the ventilator, you are going to be in droplet precaution as long as the system is a closed system and you have your filters in place. Okay. And so if it would pop off, you know, it's less than two minutes. So your yeah, chance of exposure is pretty small. Exactly. And we're trying to use as many negative pressure rooms as we can. I mean, that's a, a luxury that we have plenty of now, but we might not, you know, and just have to make do. They're, they're doing something unusual that they don't do all the time, and it's not easy to do, but they're proning the patient or laying the patient on their stomach. What's, what's, the, what's the idea behind that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, it's, a, it's another early intervention that we can do. Um, we place patients on their stomachs. Um, while they're being on the, on the ventilator. We've done this before, 
Right, um, right. Yeah, but it's really working with these patients. Yeah. So we're finding that doing this early in the disease process is benefiting them. Um, not only are we doing this with patients on event, we have actually asked some of our patients on Vapotherm high flow therapy to actually lie on their stomach as well, and we've seen great benefit. Because what that does is it allows the blood going to the lung and the oxygen going into the lung to have a better match, correct? It does, and it allows, you know, the, the heart ends up resting on the sternum when the patients are in prone position, and that allows the bases of those lungs to have better aeration and oxygenation. Interesting. Not easy to do, though. I mean, it's not, I mean, it, there's a lot of logistics to flipping that patient on their stomach in the ICU for on an extended event. period of time, isn't it? Yeah. You are correct. It's a lot of manpower. Yeah. And then we have a protocol in place that once they are, are prone, we leave them prone position for 14 to 16 hours. And that's, and then back to the... And then back, they go back to their back, yeah, supine. So now is, what are some of the complications that I imagine you're setting the patient up maybe for a pressure injury, Could pressure be. ulcer because mm -hmm. you're, they're positioning different? Could be. One of the things that we do for the ET tube is um, we change the tube holder out. So we make sure that we put pillows in place and we're looking for all of those pressure points to try to relieve those pressure points. Yeah, because 12 hours is certainly long enough to develop a pressure ulcer, 90 minutes in some studies if the patient's sick. Yeah. Now, positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP, how is that fitting into the COVID patient? Yeah, well, these patients, you know, what with they go into adult respiratory distress syndrome, and in that um, disease process, your alveoli are, are very inflamed. So the alveoli really like to have that peep. You know, that's kind of where the magic occurs, the oxygenation and ventilation in the lungs. So um, peep can really help with that. So higher peep levels is what we're seeing with these patients. And what, what's the high that you're seeing? 12. 12. Starting out at 12. Normal peep that when we put a patient on a ventilator, we use five. Yeah. So we're above doubling it, that peep pressure. When I trained, this is obviously the early 90s, you know, you, you would get scolded if you have someone on 10, mm -hmm. you know, they, you, you would get, you would, I mean, your attending would call you out and say, what are you doing? You know, now I know there's trauma surgeons that use 20, you know, just like it's nothing, which really that blows my mind. Now, I know sometimes we've used nitric oxide in the past for patients, which is just helps dilate the capillaries in the lung and better air exchange. Mm -hmm. Do you see that this being a role in this particular patient category? Um, I really don't think so. Um, I think that if we do see a role, it'll be minimal. You know, it's going to be that patient that has been on the ventilator for a long time, the patient that we have put in prone positioning for a long time, and we're just not seeing improvement. So after you've maximized everything, everything. you can do, you're going to just, why not try it, right? right. It's not going to hurt, so let's right. try it. How about, uh, I know your team and particularly Andy, uh, has done a lot of legwork with ECMO therapy, uh, and they're so excited about it. How do you see ECMO? It's kind of similar to kind of after you've maximized everything? Then, Yeah, yeah, that's what we're seeing. Um, on the ELSO website, we've been following the, the numbers, and I looked this morning, and in North America, we've got 148 patients on ECMO that are COVID positive. Wow. So not very many. No, not it, when you consider the number of cases. I mean, that's exactly, yeah. Which either means we've doing a good job of oxygenating or not using ECMO enough. You know, well, that's that'll be seen. You know, it'll be interesting when we get this is all over with, and we look back at all the data and find out what we really knew and what we didn't know and what works and what didn't. I mean, I, I think we're close on a lot of these issues, but I definitely some of it will change. 
absolutely. It is is an ever changing situation. We've never been in this before. So yeah, I, I said the other day you can just make up stuff because you're no more right or wrong than the next guy because it changes so rapidly. Exactly. You know, Julie. One last question: Why did you become a respiratory therapist? Oh, <laughs> well, my mom actually was a nurse and. She wanted me to go into, told me to go into the healthcare field. There would always be uh, a job in healthcare, a need. So I wasn't really too keen on being a nurse. I was trying to find my way, and I happened to stumble across a video about respiratory therapists and um, fell in love with it. I've been a respiratory therapist for 28 years now, and here at St. Luke's for 25, and I wouldn't do anything else. So you started at St. Luke's when you were six? Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Julie, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. You and your team are so busy and so important right now to this effort. And But I think this is important to discuss on this. Some of it was inside baseball, a little shop talk. But I think the general public may have at least come to appreciate how the respiratory therapist factors into the team, perhaps uh, an appreciation that they that was unrecognized previously. Once again, that was Julie Smith, manager of respiratory therapy at St. Luke's Hospital. For the most up-to-date information on COVID-19, visit our website at unionpoint.org or the Center's for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. If you have a topic you'd like to suggest for the COVID-19 pandemic, please uh, shoot us an email at stlukescr at unipoint.org. In the meantime, wash your hands, cover your cough, and confine yourself if you're ill, and uh, practice social distancing.